Hi, I'm Donny Kanile, and you're listening to Me After You, a podcast that aims to share the real stories of women who've experienced the major life transition of becoming parents. This is a space where we can show up for ourselves and each other with honesty, grace, and compassion, sharing information and learning tools to lean into the power and purpose of our lives. I'm so grateful that our first episode is a rich and expansive conversation with a deeply wise and generous elder. Ravi has four decades of experience in guiding people on their personal healing journeys as a yoga therapist, a yoga teacher trainer, and as a doula. Her journey as a yoga therapist began in 1982 when she started teaching yoga and meditation to anti-apartheid activists. Her experience gained during these years resulted in a lifelong interest in using yoga to heal mental and physical imbalance. She's been a doula for 38 years and has guided women in how to prepare their bodies for conception through pregnancy and beyond the weaning years. This is a really, really good conversation, so I hope you enjoy. Thank you so much, Ravi, for making the time for this conversation today. We really value you being with us. Thank you. And I'd like to just start by maybe discussing how you came to this work. I know that you've been an African Kundalini yoga teacher, as well as a doula for many, many years. But how did you come to your calling to be a teacher, a healer, a holder of sacred space for people? Thanks, Ndoni. You know, I, I, I feel like these things are callings. Um, it's not something we decided. Well, it certainly wasn't something I decided. I was very young. And um, when I first came into contact with yoga and meditation, I was a child. I was 12. And it was in a very strange situation, really, because the teacher who had come to this little, very, very kind of conservative little Africana town in, in the northern Transvaal, which it was at that time, she had come to teach the town about yoga and meditation, or rather about yoga, actually. And this was way back in the early 70s. So yoga was seen as something quite satanic, um, if it was known at all, actually. So she very quickly became um, pariah in the town, the town's people, especially the church, kicked her out, um, not by expressly kicking her out, but by disallowing any of the women who were attending her classes and they were threatened with excommunication. So the women left and this teacher also left. So for me as a child, you know, I mean, I left that town as soon as I was old enough to leave at 17, came to live in Johannesburg. And the seeds were sown of some kind of deep memory that had been stirred in me about healing. I, I had a very, very difficult childhood, very traumatic childhood in, in many ways. Um, we were foreigners in, in the town. We had come to live there and we had members of our family who were quite the shade, you know, quite a lot darker than I am. And so when they came to visit us, you know, there was this kind of hullabaloo in the town about who are you and where do you come from and where do you fit in. So growing up there was was it was actually quite traumatic in many ways. Um, even though I wasn't aware of it at the time, I was just a child. 
But n- knowing and understanding what the yoga had done for me just in that few few short months, um, I kind of understood something on a deep soul level about it and pursued it when I came to Johannesburg. So I went to Wits University. It was a crazy time. Um, you know, it was the very early 80s where the struggle was full force in the country. So there wasn't a lot um, of studying going on. It was actually just a lot of activism, really. And what I did was I taught people around me because I had been practicing yoga on my own. I taught people around me about yoga just as a natural consequence of doing it myself. The activists that I was living and working with um, became quite interested, you know, and some of them, not, not many, but some. And I understood from that relationship, again, on a sort of cellular level rather than conscious level, I understood that that was my role, was to help people who were um, going through traumatic times, you know, and understanding from my own healing and understanding in those days, things were really tough. You know, people were really suffering. There was a lot of oppression. It was um, emergency uh, status in the country. And so, you know, a lot of people were going through very, very traumatic things. They were going through torture. They were going, being on the run without a home to live in. Many people had left the country. Um, and so the situation was one where many people needed assistance that was not available from the medical world. You know, the medical world wasn't available and didn't really recognize trauma in those days, as a matter of fact. So that was kind of where it started. It was really a call from the universe to me, firstly, as a child, and then to me as a young adult to help other people who were who were suffering and who I understood their, their level of suffering. I understood on a very deep cellular level what it means to be feeling excluded, what it means to be feeling traumatized, to need assistance and to have no assistance, for there to be nothing there that's actually answering your call. I started understanding my role and why I was here as a human being, why I was in Africa. You know, like how how did we land up here? You know, what what happened on an ancestral level that I had to come here and to grow up here and to be exposed to the healing systems and the healing the, the 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 knowledge systems here, which I was exposed to from a very young age, and then to begin to compare the two and to realize, oh, actually, you know, there's so much similarity here. There is so much that feels familiar about African healing systems and this system, which came from India. And it's been a lifelong process, Ndoni, of really tracking the roots of this area of study, which is really about how to heal myself, to heal others, and tracking it back through the ages and landing up in Africa every time, different parts of Africa. But these are the roots. You know, this is where where we began as a species. So this is where our belief systems began as a species. And this is where our capacity to heal each other and to answer the call from each other to spirit, you know, to bring spirit into our lives, to feel deeply connected to spirit, and to use that to heal ourselves and others. 
So it has been a lifelong process for me. There was never a moment where that wasn't the case. It was just a slow waking up progressively to the reality, and it continues, of what that really means and what is my role. I'm really curious what the reaction of the activists that you were in community with, what their reaction was when you introduced yoga as a healing modality for them, how they took that on, um, and also how the people in your community of yoga reacted to you using this healing modality as part of your activism and your purpose work in the world, especially the political activism bringing that into the yoga community, what the reaction was. So again, you know, a lifelong journey. So I was very young, you know, when, when I was first introduced to the struggle, it was 1976, I was 14. And so I came in alongside scholars and students, you know, mostly scholars, obviously, because of my age, through the Christian movement. So it was the young, you know, YCS, young Christian students, were infiltrated through all kind of university level and school level um, students. And I was introduced to, to young people my own age who were going through what the country was going through at the time and the rage, you know, the outrage, and really understanding for, from, for the first time as a very young person what it all meant, you know, at least to the extent that a 14-year-old can understand. And, and then to be, to make, to be making friends, you know, to be understanding having been kept so separate in this funny little town that I grew up in. And then, you know, coming as a 14 year old and seeing, oh, well, you know, there's a whole world here. There's an entire universe that is phenomenally exciting and fantastic and, you know, full of, full of joy. So the initial introduction of yoga into a Christian environment was very difficult. And obviously, from young Christian students, it became young Christian workers, you know, and then there was this very, um, very real exposure to people's fears if they did anything that was seen to be outside of the church. And that just continued, you know, that got stronger and stronger. Like in the, in the, in the 90s, when after liberation, I began working in hospitals like um, Joburg Jinn and Hilborough Hospital and Barra, and, and working with, with women mainly who were diagnosed as HIV positive and seeing incredible results, like working with women who were already losing weight, they had skin lesions, you know, and, and living in secret because in those days it was, it was quite a dangerous thing to admit that you, that you were HIV positive. There was a great deal of activism around that as well. And around getting access to free medication. You know, it was only really the very privileged in the country who could afford to take medication. So my focus in those days was really to bring yoga in and to prove how very naively how effective yoga is. And it did, it did work. People started gaining weight, their skin lesions cleared up, the whole tone of their skin changed. You know, a lot of the women, they were sort of dark and sunken. In that, in that sort of sense of depression and hiding and, you know, everything was, was, was very shut down and they started kind of opening up and I would have classes of 60 to 80 people in, in the class. Well, not that, you know, it wasn't a classroom. It was a, you know, place behind Barrow where, where the AIDS organizations were working. 
But this hall was full every time I had a class and I was teaching twice a week. And then almost overnight, it the, the classes came down to five people, six people. And it took me a long time to get to the bottom of it because people weren't speaking. And eventually I realized it was the church. The church had stepped in. So more than politics, it was religion. And it was then that I realized, firstly, I don't speak, I don't speak the language. I'm not able to really address on the same level as where people are coming from. I need to train teachers. I need to train people from the community so that they can do the work. I'm very happy to pass on everything that I know, but it's, it's a bit pointless me trying, you know, knocking on, on door after door after door. The doors kept on closing. And it was only when I took that decision to, to go into teacher training and to train people from communities that are most deeply affected by poverty, by illness, by lack of access, that the door started opening. It was quite clear that, oh, oh, okay, I get it. This is where, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And that took long enough for me to actually, you know, get the message. And then I had to face the yoga world. You know, then it was a case of, well, how dare you? You know, who do you think you are? You're not allowed to go into teacher training. You have to be, you have to be very wealthy. You have to have paid an enormous amount of money in order to earn the right. And it was all about money and privilege, really, to earn the right to be a teacher trainer. And there were very real forces stacked up against me in the country that worked. It took me about 15 years. It was from about the year 2000 that I started go, you know, started saying to the people in the Kundalini Yoga structures locally, listen, I've, I'm qualified to do this. You don't, you're not part of African communities. You don't have a history with any African communities. You People don't know you. They don't trust you. You haven't walked the walk. So let me do this. I'm not any threat. I'm not taking anything away from your earning capacity because they only taught white people anyway. Let me do this work. And anyway, it took me a long time to actually um, break through. I eventually had to approach international structures, which turned out to be exactly the same, trying to block me, and also listening to the white structures in South Africa. A lot of the people that had been trained before as teachers, not there were, were not many, um, there were a handful of, of black people who had been trained as Kundalini yoga teachers from, from the nineties. They were kind of working in the kitchen, you know, cooking food and, and would do everything that they were told. And there was a particular, a particular kind of energy that was being cultivated, which I objected to very strongly. And of course, the people who were attracted to me were activists, outspoken, well spoken. Well educated, you know, not, not servile, not people who were used to being, you know, saying yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, three bags full, ma'am, but people who could think for themselves and who, who I was training to be leaders, not followers. And so the pushback was enormous to the extent that we, we actually had an, I called for, well, we called for an investigation into the racism in the yoga structures in South Africa in 2015. Long before it all exploded in other, you know, in other ways in the country, um, that call for it started in about 2012. The call for investigation 
around what was happening here. And it took us three to four years to get them to actually launch an investigation. And then their final sort of outcome was that, no, no, there's no racism in the, in the white structures. And that was after hours and hours and hours of interviewing the teachers that I've trained, like Vanessa and Ayanda. Um, who else was there? Kafui. There were a lot of people, like five or six different women who were interviewed and who really gave their heartfelt, shared their heartfelt experiences of racism, direct racism. And, you know, the final outcome was, oh, no, there is no racism. So it was, it was sort of, again, the final closed door for me, you know, eventually going, oh, okay, you know, this is really a pointless, it's a pointless struggle here. We're trying to persuade white people about the problems of racism. It's not something that I want to focus my time on. It's not something that I want to spend my energy on. It feels like a waste of time and time is short. So that was when I decided right, right at, the, at the end of 2018, at the end of this investigation, when, I, when we got this terribly, like quite heartbreaking, um, you know, what they shared with us, this letter of decision that they had come to these international structures um, called 3HO and Kundalini, uh, Kundalini Research Institute, they had decided that there was no racism here. That was the final closing of the door going, you're looking in the wrong direction. You're not, you're, again, you're, you're knocking on doors that are closed and will never open. And that was really, I, I guess, for me, a deep understanding of it's about, it's about tracking the roots of the systems that I'm working with, and they bring me back to Africa every time, working with traditional healers here as well to, to train the skill of meditation, the skill, what African healers are really good at doing is opening up the realms of perception and opening up these avenues of deeply female energy. They're not so good at closing them down. So there's a lot of pain and physical um, discomfort, emotional pain and physical discomfort that I've noticed in, in my working with, with the local people who are trained in African systems of healing. So my understanding is this is my, you know, it was always my intention, but it's kind of come back really strongly and powerfully, is to bring those techniques into African healing schools as a reintroduction, I don't see it as an introduction. I see it as, as something that has been lost through corruption and through oppression and colonization. That these methods, and they haven't been entirely lost. There are certain healers, African healers, who speak very, very closely, very clearly the same language as these methods of yoga techniques. So to bring them back into the shamanic training that exists here. And to ensure that African healers have that capacity for self-training, which isn't reliant on anything outside. It's a deep internal awakening of, of intuition, um, which fits in beautifully with the healing systems that exist here. So long story, but that's kind of my answer to your question. And that feels like it could be an entire conversation and area of exploration on its own, right, because right. it feels like what you're speaking to is the idea of the need to 
decolonize healing spaces and traditions of healing as well, that this work of remembering, unlearning first, remembering, going back to fetch the things that can serve us in this moment, but then also reimagining what is possible going forward. Um, And that feels like really important work that you're doing. But if we can maybe shift gears slightly now and, and, and look at the world of birth, I know that when I gave birth to my, my first son, Kaya, what I discovered was, well, I felt like I birthed a new version of myself. And it was the beginning of a sort of reintroduction to this new version of myself. And what I found was that I felt how disconnected from my body I had been for most of my life, really. And that I feel like modern lives that we live deepen this disconnection that we have from ourselves and from our bodies. Can you talk a bit about what the cost of this modern life is on that deep connection with self Mm. and with our bodies Mm. and our somatic knowing? So I um, have been working for many years on the concept of the womb space which is not um, only for people who have a physical womb. It's a space that exists in our bodies that because of a systemic imbalance between male and female energy has basically been left out even of the esoteric teachings. So the the seven most well-known chakra systems are broadcast right throughout the world and fairly well-known now. And, of course, there there are many more chakras which are, which are, are lesser known. But the chakra that exists at the womb space is entirely forgotten. And mostly that's because yoga and meditation and many indigenous knowledge systems have been taught by men to men, mostly. Because the women have been at home raising the children, living the womb space, right? But it had, is not, was not and is not allowed into the esoteric and the sacred teachings because of the power that it represents. So the power of the womb space is one that connects directly, firstly, to the lineage of wombs that we all come from. No human being does not come from a lineage of wombs, where there is the the mother, the grandmother, the great-grandmother, the line of foremothers going way back to the dawn of time, really. And that lineage of wombs is what we are coming into when we come into this realm. We're not coming into the womb only of one woman. We are coming into the, into the, into the womb that has been impacted by generations. Now, in past generations, the womb space or the womb, the womb lineage has been impacted by wisdom by you know the grandmothers teaching the daughter the mothers teaching the daughters the wisdom of the lineage keeping the 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 sacredness of this female energy intact so the major imprint of the womb space the dominant imprint the blueprint really is from the sacred feminine from the divine mother from the golden womb that birthed all of everything right from where humanity and every other species all of life comes from that concept of the golden womb, which exists in many ancient cultures, that we are born of this divine, the sacred feminine, which has an equal aspect of the masculine. So it's a genderless being. 
There is no, you know, the God is female or God is male. It is a genderless divine intelligence that in its aspect of creation expresses as the sacred feminine and, of course, has the sacred masculine as well. But we're focusing on the sacred feminine here. It's like we've cast out the mother and she's in the wilderness. She's wandering way over there and we've lost complete access to her energy, her care, her nurturing. In other words, the sacred feminine energy aspect in the universe. And what that has resulted in is us overly depending on masculine energy to the detriment of the entire species and not to mention the planet. The dominant energy in all our bodies of knowledge, male energy, that's what science relies on. You know, masculine energy is predictable, it's measurable, it's easy to see a cause and effect, perfect for science. It's fantastic. So let's rather look at that. Let's not look at intuition. Let's not look at the subtle underpinning of every endeavor with this energy that is female in its essence, the life-giving energy of, of the feminine essence. Let's ignore that because we can't measure it. Let's devalue it because it's dangerous, because it's unpredictable, and because we don't understand. So the result of that is the devaluing of on the lowest level, every cycle in the human body that depends on female energy. So the menstrual cycle is devalued. In fact, to the extent that it's hidden and through contraception, it's eliminated. It's gone, right? So that's our most basic female element of our lives and it's and and men you know the male body is as equally not as obviously but equally affected by the cyclical nature of everything everything has a cyclical nature you know we go through childhood and then we enter puberty and then we go through young adult they're all cycles so the male body is as affected by the oppression of the cyclical nature of, the, of, of all of us, which is very female. Female energy goes in cycles. It waxes and it wanes, very much like the moon, which is why we are so aligned with the moon energy in our cycles, the obvious bleeding aspect of our cycles. When you oppress that, when you suppress it, to the extent that you eliminate it, and women don't bleed at all, or they bleed only under the influence of a chemical. So it's a chemical cycle. It's not your cycle. It's not the moon's cycle. It's got nothing to do with earth energy. It has no connection with cosmic energy whatsoever, not to mention your own body. But when you do that, that's systemic. That's deep in a system of beliefs and values. And it, it, colonizes us, it has colonized us to live as a society totally out of balance and completely reliant only on male energy, honoring only the male aspect instead of having equal access to both. So if we look at that deeply in this, this systemic understanding of how we're living, we have Casting the mother out, which is like living as the children of divorce as a species, 
we're living in this in this household as as a planet where we disrespect everything to do with the feminine body. So to the extent we're clitoridectomies, still up, still practice today, you know, circumcising the female and comparing it to circumcising the male when they're completely different aspects of the anatomy. But doing that because it's a way of controlling the feminine power, the power of sexuality, completely misunderstanding how ovulation works scientifically still having no real understanding of pregnancy properly, of how to birth in a way that supports the woman and deeply holds her as the bringer in of the future generations. Totally devalued to the point where women in public hospitals, and I've worked in public hospitals here, alongside, I'm not even allowed in most of the time, but watching the women being beaten as they give birth in the public hospitals, in our system, beaten by women. There can be no more corrupt, no more deeply corrupt aspect of our approach to the female energy than treating a birthing woman like worse than an animal, worse than a dog, therefore traumatizing this woman and ensuring that the next generation is going to be traumatized. Because if the mother is traumatized, the child will be traumatized. So now we're looking at a whole lineage of women who've been traumatized. And what are they passing through the womb? Instead of wisdom and guidance and knowledge for our species, they are passing trauma. There's so much there in what you've just said. And it, it gets me quite emotional, actually, when I picture what you said about that lineage of wombs and what are we giving forward? What are we passing on? Is it a wisdom that's being passed forward or is it, um, is it trauma? You know? um, and speaking about trauma, how can someone who has experienced trauma in their lives, how does that experience of trauma impact on your birthing experience? And then also somebody who has a traumatic birth, something like you're describing in the hospital scenes that you've seen. How, if that has been your experience, how can you begin to process and heal that trauma from a birthing experience? So this is what's marvelous about us as human beings is that we have the capacity to heal from anything, right? This is what we have gifted to us is a brain, a nervous system that is inherently plastic. In other words, you can reshape and remold and recover from anything that has happened to you, obviously with the correct guidance. So my direct experience of trauma, being with um, many women who've given birth and observing the ones who have the, had the privilege, you know, and it comes in lineages. This is why we're also suffering at the moment. Some lineages are suffering five, six, seven, eight COVID deaths. Sorry, I'm just digressing just a little bit. It's because the weakness is inherent in the lineage. It has been passed down, and that's got to do with privilege. It's got to do with some people having access to more than others. It's as simple as that. When the lineage generationally 
has had limited access to information, to resources, and to wealth, you know, to, to, to lack of poverty. Let's put it that way. The immune system, the body, is just more powerful. So working with women and observing the ones who have had the privilege of these very protected, you know, childhoods and and from great-grandparents, you know, just access, lots of access, and watching them give birth and then watching a woman who has literally got nothing. And I'm talking Hilbra Hospital where a lot of the women are have refugee status. Right? They, they do not have access, not even to family, not even to their own mothers who can support. So that level of lack of access. Working and, and watching how they respond. The one is responding to intergenerational trauma and the other is reacting to access and privilege. And, and also the benefit of family, the benefit of community and having that protective cocoon around them. That often is the determination between a traumatic birth and a, and a non-traumatic birth, even as difficult as a birth can be, that sense of being shielded and cocooned either by privilege or by the privilege of a rich community, an interconnected family and kinship ties that protects people from feeling so terribly alone. Those, the capacity to withstand the most difficult birth is much greater. However, even with that, even with a very like, um, resilient capacity to face trauma, women are still getting more and more traumatized by birth. And the reason for that is we're giving birth in hospitals. It's a very male environment. And it operates on very male principles. So a woman's labor can be going beautifully, from my perspective, as a doula. Beautiful, slowly learning how to go through each contraction, slowly understanding the principle of breathing through every contract, really learning, you know, because birth is a learning process from beginning, especially for a new mom, but even for women with five children. Every child is different. It's a new soul coming through with new challenges. So watching that beautiful process interrupted all the time, the nurse coming in, I've got to take your, you know, I've got to do an internal examination. I've got to strap you to the bed. I've got to listen to the baby's heartbeat. So interrupting this incredibly magical and incredibly sensitive female energy process with the overriding concern about saving lives. And of course, that's important. I mean, there's no question that it's important. But because there's so little understanding of birthing and pregnancy and what women really need in that process, the overemphasis, once again, it's systemic, on male energy concerns. We've got to save life. We've got to make sure infection doesn't spread, et cetera, et cetera, just takes privilege. It dominates and women get traumatized. They're traumatized because they don't have support. And it's not like, you know, they've got the nurses around them, the nurses are doing their best, but the nurses are trained in a male system. They're trained in a way that's looking for the wrong things entirely to prevent trauma. They're looking for the right things to prevent death and infection, but the wrong things 
for preventing trauma. So really understanding how that to bring that female energy in, to work alongside. We're not looking to replace. We're just looking to reinstate, to reclaim that womb space, the womb space which is dominated by female energy. When that comes in, will balance the chakra system of the universe. I can see what you're saying so clearly illustrated in the difference between my two births. With my first son, I had him at Genesis, which is, you know, compared to most hospitals, much, much different and far closer to what it is that you would like to have, ideally, but still has to adhere to certain hospital and medical protocols, right? And I was a first-time mother. I was scared. There was fear, fear of pain, fear of can I do it? Um, And I think I was in my head a lot, so it took a long time. and, And, you know, things stalled at times. And when I look at, you know, the difference between that first birth, which all in all, I think was, I found a beautiful experience. But when I compare that to the second birth with my son, Zion, he was born at home. He was born in the water. I had a doula. It was very calm and peaceful in the room. The lights were low. Um, And I was really left to birth in my own way. I was fully supported. I never felt alone, but I was never interfered on. I was never encroached on. I had no internal exams. And they really made it clear to me that they're here to respond to me and to support. But I I was very much sort of left to a deeply respectful privacy. And when I think about the feeling of the two births and what they left me with, I can see power of that birth at home where I was the absolute authority in that space and in that experience. Nobody stepped on that sense of authority or physical autonomy. And that's such a gift. It should be how all births are, we would wish, but it was, it was a real gift to have that experience. So I absolutely see what you're, you're referring to. But how can we use the experience of birthing to reconnect us or to reawaken a new knowing of ourselves, a deeper understanding of our true nature as human beings, as women, as divine creations. So this is another huge topic for me. Um, You know, I did a study um, in psychology using yoga therapy, and that took long enough to persuade people. Um, you know the institutions to accept yoga therapy as a as a, um, a as an acceptable topic for westernized academic standards. Um, and I worked with seven women who were pregnant and who had had trauma in some shape or form in their previous you know before. So some had had just one incident of uh, or two incidents of something terribly traumatic happening to them. And others had had childhood trauma. They had grown up in very extremely traumatic circumstances from from little, from childhood. So some had complex PTSD, which is really a way of describing a person who's very vulnerable to any future trauma because of childhood trauma. So adverse childhood experiences would then prime them for a difficult experience triggering PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. 
So, and some three of them had had previous traumatic births. And I took them through a program. I obviously couldn't teach them. I had to get other people to teach them because it was a formal study. And we, they went through an eight-week program where they, they did certain practices. They were guided in their journaling. I kept an eye on the whole process from beginning to end, guiding the one who was, who was instruct, doing the instructions and really containing the women in this cocoon of, of potential, really, of, of showing them where to look to find their strength. And three of those women gave birth in public hospitals where they had had traumatic experiences before, and all of them had beautiful births. One even had a Caesar, a C-section, and still had a beautiful experience because she was able to use the breathing she was able to access an, autonom an, an autonomous aspect of her being, even within this terribly restricted environment that was, um, you know, dominated by their previous experiences of trauma. It could have turned out very differently. They could have had births that were equally or more traumatic, traumatic and have landed up in a much worse situation for those subsequent children that, that they were giving birth to. So the, the capacity for a woman to find her autonomous self, a woman who's giving birth, a woman who's carrying a child, is something that breaks the lineage pattern of oppression of women. Now, we know that that is an issue worldwide. It's not something that any woman escapes from. No matter how privileged she might be in other aspects, that aspect of, of oppression of the female and of colonization of the womb space, where even your decision of how to prevent contraception is taken away from you, your decision of how to breastfeed your child is not really your own to make. You're so infiltrated by society's approach that Autonomy is a very foreign concept, and authentic autonomy would need a overhauling of the whole system that we are part of. So giving a woman a taste, an understanding of that autonomous self makes on a, on a physical, on a psychological, socio-psychological level, gives it the capacity to face this momentous task. As we all know, it's a huge thing to give birth. It's a massive process that you are facing where your body is kind of taken over by these amazing powers. At the same time, if you're not on top of that, you can drown. So giving her the capacity to stay riding that wave of power and come out absolutely triumphant on the other side means you are defining the kind of mother she's going to be. She's defining the kind of mother she's going to be. So she's giving birth to herself as a mother. She's ensuring that her imprint on the next generation is one of self-empowerment rather than helpless victim waiting to be helped to get the baby out. That's not who we are supposed to be. We are mothers, yes? That in all the glory of its word, when you truly give it the capacity, the, the deep understanding of what that means, the divine mother, 
We are mothers who are representing that divine mother energy, that capacity to birth a universe. We are doing in that moment where we birth a child or two children or three. So doing it with that same divine confidence, that same imprint of I can do this, I am strong, I am powerful, ensures the next generation is born with a healthy mindset around female energy. The next generation, like so many women are choosing to do elective C-sections, the next generation is born with an understanding that they can't do it. They don't have the capacity to give birth naturally, and we are seeing it more and more and more as hospital systems take over birthing and even in Europe make proclamations, legal proclamations, that if you give birth at home, you'll go to prison. So you're not allowed to choose how you want to have your own child as a woman. So this process of reclaiming the womb space and of understanding how important it is to to redefine how that has been defined for us to, to decolonize that space is about way more than women's rights, way more. It's really about resetting how we are as a species because it impacts all of us. It doesn't just impact women. It, it impacts every person born of a woman, which means every person. You've spoken about what is lost when we, when certain knowledge of ourselves and the, the indigenous knowledge systems that are our birthright, when that is suppressed or withheld from us, so much is lost. What do you think is the biggest misconception that we have of ourselves as people that bring forth life because of this loss, this separation? I mean, obviously, there, it's, a, it's a big question, but I would say the, probably the most important one, even though there are many implications of us losing touch with that emp- empowered um, self-empowered aspect is that we are unable to take decisions around our own lives. As control is taken away from us more and more, so we lose the capacity to be able to be sovereign beings who can work together to create an outcome that is good for all. We become dependent children waiting for daddy to tell us what to do. And we are not. We are sovereign beings, each one of us with an incredible value and an incredible wisdom that that comes out of a lifetime of experience. We disrespect our elders. Our elders are not even worth respecting, many of them, because they've lost so much capacity. And they've believed they've bought into the system so much that they've become helpless, even more so helpless children and unable to give any real wisdom and guidance other than that which is just parroted from from previous generations. There's no new, deep, well-thought-through, sovereign, authentic insight that has come from a well-trained mind and a well-trained body. So a body that understands its cycles, deeply understands its emotional cycles, its mental cycles, and its physical cycles, which all of them together contribute to a spiritual wellness. 
If you're out of touch with any of those cycles, you will suffer from mental depression or mental imbalances. You will suffer from paranoia or an increasingly restricted capacity to be creative in the way you think, to come up with deep insights. If you're out of touch with your emotional cycles, you, you will be unpredictable in the way in which you age. You will not be a respected, dignified elder who has the capacity, not through the age, simple reaching of a certain age, but through the displaying of deeply sought through, deconstructed, decolonized wisdom. If you cannot control your emotions, you won't be able to reach that place. You will be guided. You will be colonized. You will be oppressed by previous generations of trauma, which you are carrying unknowingly, which you don't understand. And you're not aware of how those unconscious patterns are governing your every thought, your every action, and your every word. And if you're out of touch with your body physically, then you are so dependent on the systems of healing that are presenting themselves as being the end, the be-all and end-all of every system that ever was, you are completely at their mercy. And you trust them like they are God. You will trust your doctor's word over your body's sense of what is right and wrong because you're so out of touch with what your body is saying. You have no understanding when you eat this piece of food that you are depressing your energy and you have lost the capacity to sense beyond what that numb, dull block of energy is saying in your own body, which eventually becomes illness. And so by the time you're 50, in our country, you have developed some kind of long-term terminal chronic illness. For somebody who knows that they have it in their heart that they would like to have a child and would like to prepare themselves to conceive, how do you think you should go about beginning to prepare your body, your mind, your spirit to take on that experience? The short version is find yourself a teacher who has been through that, who understands the fearless approach to childbirth, who deeply embodies fearlessness when it comes to childbirth, not foolishness, fearlessness. So deeply knowing when to take the right steps in order to guide your process towards a, the ultimate conclusion, a gentle birth of whatever form. If it has to be a C-section, wonderful, no problem with that at all. We go in with an open heart with a full approach of how fantastic we are. We've made all the right decisions. The child has chosen differently. And you bow before that. So training is the long answer here. Every woman needs training. Every young girl, pubescent young girl, who identifies as a woman, who wants to, to live her life with that full expression of having a female body, must be trained to understand her cycles. She must be trained to understand how to use her intuition to tune into her own body. She must be trained to understand the benefit of food as medicine and not food just as simple fuel. So that is a lifetime training. But in our circles, whenever we come across women and we get onto the topic as we do of birthing and children, 
to really speak about your experience as a woman who believes in the power of giving birth, who believes in that capacity for a woman to birth herself as a, a total upgrade of who she used to be and to sell it, you know, to really sell it because we've got huge powers working against us that are selling the opposite because you make a lot more money from controlling a woman's birth. A lot of women want to give birth. It's a very ready stream of income for those who are trained to take advantage of that. So we need to be working together as, as, a, as a mindset that opposes the mainstream, very male energy-dominated mindset that exists out there, not in a combative way, not in an aggressive, like, in-your-face. That is not how female energy works. Female energy works to balance things. It works to create harmony. Sometimes you need anger, for sure. Sometimes you need retributive power to protect the vulnerable and to protect the weak, yes. That is sometimes necessary, but only in micro doses where it is, has be, intuition has shown you, okay, now, now's the time. You've got to come in really strong here. And other times to be able to very skillfully, very strategically win over the hearts and minds, to bring people through your passion, through your understanding of how important this field is, to bring people over. And, and to show the benefit of understanding how your body works, having that beauty of this miraculous cyclical system working properly under your control, where you decide, educating the men around us who want to be fathers of how to take responsibility for contraception, of how to take responsibility for their own seed and what happens to that seed, how they where and how they spread that seed around. It's, a, it's, it's somewhere where we have to work together. We have to create a systemic change. It's a paradigm shift that is just waiting to happen. And the more of us that are behind the wheel pushing that paradigm shift forward, the more it will, it will happen. At least for some of us, it will happen. That is my firm belief. And that's definitely our mission and our hope and our prayer with this work that we're doing, this podcast and having these conversations, it's, um, it's absolutely a labor of love on my part because I've been profoundly and deeply changed by this experience. And it also awakened a deep sense of injustice in me about what is going on that, you know, the lives of women Absolutely. are and mothers are as they are. Something's wrong. Something's really, really wrong. And that feeling of something's wrong awakened the need to do something, which is the seed of, of all of this work. Thank you for listening. And thank you for helping me bring this labor of love into the world. You can learn more about Ravi's training programs and her one-on-one -on -one offerings on her website, itarisource.com. We'll link to the website, her YouTube channel, and Instagram account in the show notes. If you enjoyed this conversation, please help us grow by subscribing and rating the show, and be sure to share it with anyone you think could benefit from it. It is our hope to begin a community of honest conversation. So please follow the Me After You community on Instagram and Facebook. Be well, 
be safe, and see you back here soon.